Welcome back to another episode of Fantastic Voyage, a David Bowie podcast. I'm Jesse. And I am John. And this is our first broadcast of 2024, so Happy mm. New Year to all of our listeners out there. Took a bit of an unannounced hiatus of a couple of months, but... We always do it around Christmas time. I feel like it's almost to be expected at this point. It's Needless to say, there's stuff going on, and visiting everybody, and cooking, and hibernating, and everything else. I was sick for a month, basically. <laughs> as soon as we got over a flu, we'd catch another one, so that was kind of rough, but... We were healthy through the holidays. We hope everybody else had a good holiday season, uh, all of our listeners out there. Uh, listen to any Bowie <laughs> during our, Not our break? Not really. Well, let me think back. I, I mean, I probably did. Um, we had a little bit of a New Year's bash, and I was playing records to start out. And I played like Ziggy Stardust, the album. No good crowd pleaser. It's a palatable enough album for everyone. Like the whole album? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Um, but I'm trying to think... No, I don't think I, I... I usually use it as, like, a little bit of a hiatus. Like, I mostly... I, I went to the, a lot of record stores kind of over the holidays um, and was just kind of buying different things. You know, one thing I love about going to the record stores is that I used to hate this about them, but I've learned to appreciate it because I have such a big catalog of essential albums. So when you go to a record store, all you really find are the passed-over albums. You know, you go into the section right. of the artist, and it's like... The quote-unquote bad albums, right? Yeah. But those are the ones I'm kind of interested in these days. Yeah. Like, oh, I got totally. an album by The Fall called Middle Class Revolt. It's, like, just a, a random album of theirs in the 90s. But I, the thing about a group like The Fall is you're supposed to have them all. They have, like, 50 albums, and you kind of need to listen to them all. So it, it's it's good for that, right? You're at the mercy of what the record store has. And I right, think it's, yeah. it's also a good tool to... Uh, just to listen to things that you might not normally listen to. Because you'll always reach for the classics and your favorites. It's good for breaking you out of your routine or your habits. And then you get to uncover gems and stuff like that. So I had a, I kind of had a lot of fun doing that over the, the last couple of weeks, the last month. It's a commitment when you have the, the album. Mm -hmm. As where, you know, if you tell somebody, hey, check out this album. And then they stream it and they'll skip the first <laughs> song. It's, it's, or, you know, you, you, there's... It's a bit different if you say, like, hey, I think you should check out this album. Say you're trying to get somebody into a band or a record or something, and you, like, lend them the album. Or they go mm -hmm. out and buy it because you recommended it. Like, the chances of actually getting into it are so much greater when you yeah. when you find it at the record store. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I guess you did get one Bowie album during... I did, Christmas. yeah. I actually still haven't opened it, but I plan on getting around to it because, I mean, that's, that's you know, one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, yeah, you got me Buddha Suburbia yeah. for uh, on, CD on CD for Christmas. We talked like about I, it on the <laughs> episode that it's not to be listened to, not, at least not the accessible record version that I've got, where it cuts it up in weird spots and yeah. you got to get up after two songs. And CD is definitely the, the the media or the yeah because uh, it's three songs per side, right? On it, the the it, record, yeah, three six three yeah, three six nine twelve. Um, and, and that's just, it's a little bit, like, it, it came out in the CD era, so it is kind of a CD album, right? That's yeah. the way I look at it. Yeah. But, I mean, I got a lot, and that's the other thing, too, is I'm kind of getting CDs more than I used to, just because the, the price of no, Why not? And why not, right? Yeah. Like, and it, it's fun. I mean, I still get the thrill of taking something home 
and playing it and looking at the liner notes. And once again, it just it gives me that extra incentive like you were alluding to to actually listen to it. So I, I'll, I'll go to the store, spend $15, come back with three albums, and I'll, you know, especially if it's an album that I've never heard before, all of a sudden I've got like four new songs that I that I like. And I love that about, you know, the, the physical media thing and being at the quote-unquote mercy of what's at the record store. I actually view it as a, as a positive. It's not like you're actually at the mercy of it. You're, It, it takes you down different paths than, than you would normally go to so well, and, to, and to play devil's advocate to the vinyl is superior crowd um which i mean i i love we're vinyl fans obviously so i'm not mm-hmm. trying to say that it's not better or it's not anyway i just i found an interesting uh it was an academic article from uh tufts university which is a prestigious establishment and it was a sound it was on the the sound of vinyl, whether it's better or superior or not. And the answer is yes, but our ears do not have the physical capability right. of actually distinguishing between one or the other. And that when people can A, B it and pick it out, there's alternate there, or there's a, there's outside factors that lead to you being able to tell which one's vinyl and not. I thought that was interesting, just like you know, the, the research behind that where while yes, it's true, if all other things were equal, you wouldn't be really be able to tell the difference based on like our ear and like the human ear. Well, there's still lossless files, right? Like there's flack files. Right. Very, yeah. very high quality. Now, digital see, files. now, yeah, that's something they did mention. Like there was a caveat where like, if you're listening to Spotify, for example, yeah. you might be able to tell the difference if you've got a sharp ear. Um, yeah. But like CD, like yeah, like a flak file or well, something. Well, a, a lot of like modern day vinyl presses are just MP3 files anyway. So in that sense, it's like yeah, you, you actually can probably get a high like on Apple Music, you might get the higher audio right. quality actually than yeah. getting the record. Now there's some things where the record is like I think a lot better quality. For example, I bought a, a Krautrock record recently, kind of a Grail actually. I bought it because I won one of our fantasy football leagues. I would normally never spend sixty dollars on it. Well, it's not. It's a double album, so it's kind of like two, but. It's like an original pressing of this group called Amon Duel 2. The album is Yeti, and it's a really, really fantastic sounding album. Now, that type of stuff I do prefer to listen to on vinyl. Yeah. You know, if I can get a 1970 original pressing of it, like that, you know, that stuff actually, because it's it's analog recording. But, you know, when I'm listening to that Fall album I mentioned, for example, it's from the 90s. I mean, yeah, I'd rather just have the CD for that, though. Yeah. So it depends on the album, too, right? If it's from the 90s or if it's modern, the CD actually might be... just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because of like a, the, with the sequencing too, like we were talking with Buddha, like it's kind of meant for a CD almost rather than vinyl. So it does depend on the record. I, I love both though. I mean, I'll come back from the record store with both. I'll have a couple of albums, a couple of CDs. It's all about just going there and, and, and having fun and picking stuff out and bringing it home at the end of the day. And that's you know the beauty of physical media. Yeah, there's there's a lot of media to be consumed with the outside tour anyway that's what we're here for (laughs) yes we're talking bowie's outside tour we were gonna do it before the break but i think we didn't even really talk about not doing it it just kind of didn't happen i think i i just enjoy this era of his of his live performances so much i didn't want to squeak it in before Mm -hmm. a a break type thing i wanted to to really enjoy uh, listening to it and kind of preparing for it which I went ahead and didn't really do, but I've watched it and listened to it so much over the years that I can kind of just recall it. Um, we'll find out how well I can do that. But uh, yeah, so there was there's two live albums from this era that were that were released. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that a, a, a bit more later. 
Um, but yeah, so that's okay. Now let's do all these weird pronunciations. It's Uvre Shane, which is the uh, live in Dallas in 1995. And the refrain from all the madness. Right, right, yeah. And no trendy Rashouf live in Birmingham, which I. <laughs> what's that from? I, it sounds that's in '95 too. But like, what? What's the uh, the title? No trendy. I, I have no idea to be honest. No, tr- that sa- sounds familiar. Yeah, it wasn't a trend anyway. <laughs> so both were recorded in '95. Um, but yeah, there was a lot. So it's a big tour. Uh, Ninety-nine shows, which would bug me. Why didn't they just do one more show to say it was a hundred-show tour? 99 shows uh, spanning uh, just over a year. September of 95 to October of 96, all over North America, Europe, uh, in Japan. I don't think they went anywhere else in Asia. I think maybe I saw like one or two shows in like Israel or something. Um, Yeah, so big tour. Didn't make a stop in Winnipeg this time, so he skips us for the first time in we skip, three tours. We skip having Justin on the show for the first time in three <laughs> in tours. Three, three tours, right. <laughs> Excluding the uh, Tin Machine, I guess, but that's not the same. Right. Um, yeah, so some big opening acts. Uh, nine, I mean, Nine Inch Nails is, is you know, the, yeah. the big one. Um, we'll, we'll touch on that they, more they, they later. They were bigger at this point in time, right? Than, it, well, yeah. Well, yeah, let's... Or? Let's get into that. So, yeah, apparently. So they, they started the tour off in, in North America, and the crowd was there for Nine Inch Nails. And yeah. Bowie and the and crew kind of realized that, and I think they had to, like, there was pressure to not win them over, but they thought, okay, we've got to step it up because, you know, like they, it almost like the role was reversed. You know, I can imagine if you're a smaller act and you're going on tour with a big band, like, say, David Bowie, You've got this pressure to win over the crowd that's there to see someone else, but so yeah, that kind of flipped over. But he said that they focused on having fun and just going out there and hey, let's get back to basics and remember yeah. why we're here. And then the crowd started responding when they kind of took the pressure off themselves. Maybe I mean, didn't take. I'm sure it didn't take much for Bowie to go. Wait a minute, I'm I'm David Bowie. <laughs> just, just go up there and sing your songs. But a bit ambitious of a tour. I mean, he's not up there doing the stuff that the crowd is going to go, oh, yeah, not he's doing too, Yeah, he's yes. doing heroes. Like, of course I'm going to like this. Because that would be yeah. the easy way to win them back. Right. Oh, and, they, they they don't like me or whatever. Okay, well, I'll do, like, you know, heroes. Yeah. But he didn't do that. This was the first tour after he retired. Well, I guess, like you said, there's the Tin Machine stuff. But the first proper solo tour after retiring the, the hits. The hits. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of retiring the hits yeah, <laughs> but well, but he was this was the so this was the fruit of that labor yeah which was like yeah maybe he brought some of them back towards like you know the in 2000 or like the reality tour into the next century but for all intents and purposes the rest of the 90s he didn't revisit those right away so he at least retired the majority of his hits for a decade which well, is that's pretty significant was he doing under pressure during sound and vision tour no, I don't think so. So then he kind of was telling the truth at this point, right? Like he, because that's the only hit, real hit that I can think of. Maybe, he did does. they do maybe do heroes during this? Like we got the German Rock Palace performance on the TV right now. I think I remember him doing heroes during that. But other than that, I mean, like the Moon, tip, Moon Age Daydream, maybe. But even then, like it's it's not like a top. Uh, yeah, it, it's not changes, more, right? That, that's not a like. That's or more let's like, dance. It's like a popular album cut off a really popular album right. before it is a hit, right? Cause yeah. 
Yeah. Like for the most part, I mean, outside of under pressure, you look at the track listing and it's like, it's all kind of more obscure cuts. It's like Andy Warhol, Breaking Glass, Joe the Lion, Man Who Sold the Worlds. It's now a hit because Nirvana's since done it. But that was, for all intents and purposes, a pretty random song, though, right? Right. Like, for, as far as David Bowie's career had gone up until that point. More on that later, too. Um, Definitely. Yeah. But he he did he actually did Heroes thirty times, but that's on a ninety nine show set list mm-hmm. or, or uh, that's a 99 show tour yeah like under pressure i want to say was probably like for 99 of them right like that was the, the stable one that was under pressure was 97 97 yeah. okay, something like that right because yeah. that that was like part of the act like the the typical set list yeah so yeah let's so yeah other opening act so yeah morrissey record or uh did a, a few shows and then quit nine inch nails did the u.s because they just came off an extensive tour of their own did you watch? There's like an MTV interview, Bowie and Reznor sitting down. I have watched it in the yeah, past. I didn't cool. revisit it. Yeah, A lot of cool insight just into Bowie's influence on Reznor and I guess a little bit vice versa, but mostly because th- there is one of the most interesting things about that whole U.S. tour to me was how Bowie and Nine Inch Nails are, are more similar than you'd think, right? Like you would on the surface, you think Nine Inch Nails is very abrasive, but underneath that, there's kind of... I guess something a little more subtle, or I'm not sure how, you, how you'd phrase it, but, you know, because Reznor still did have kind of like infectious melodies and, and chord shifts and, and great songwriting underneath the mask or whatever you want to call it, right? Or underneath right. The, the aggression. Maybe mask isn't the most apt word, but what I find interesting about that dynamic is how Bowie was maybe the inverse of that. Like there's a, the clear infectious songwriting on the surface. That's the obvious thing for Bowie. Mm-hmm. But he had an industrial edge kind of waiting to be uncovered. Right. Right. And to be thrown over top of, of the songwriting. And that's kind of what the, this tour felt like to me. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. That's true. Yeah, because this this sound is new to Bowie mm-hmm. completely. And it's total total industrial. And yeah, yeah. And yeah so that was the, the U.S. leg of the tour. And like you said, then I think Morrissey was supposed to be the opening actor in the European tour. But I, I don't know what happened. What He... he, he he, he said he was uncomfortable. Okay. He, he went on a big spiel about how Bowie's a big superstar and uh, so he was hard he, to work yeah. with and but and he he kind of progressively would get worse in his interviews. He'd get like he'd be really really anti Bowie, but then eventually he kind of started to walk it back and go, ah, oh, well I was just kidding and I think Bowie knew that. But I mean Morrissey's a notorious prick. Yeah. I mean I'm not I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this whole praise Bowie like he's God and make it like Morrissey is obviously wrong because he's going against my hero, David Bowie. No, I mean, Morrissey's a known prick. This is a known thing. <laughs> uh, I'm, oh, I was wearing it earlier. I was wearing, I'm not wearing it now. JPEG Mafia, uh, an artist of mine that I like that's, that's more modern, he has a song called I Cannot Fucking Wait Until Morrissey Dies. <laughs> so, you know, you get the idea. Like, Morrissey, he backed out. It's, it's probably Morrissey's just, fault just that, it, that it didn't Being Morrissey, out, you know? yeah. yeah. Any other opening acts to step in? They we prick you, we we pick you prick. The prick was the opening act. That oh prick. We, well, uh, they didn't. They, sorry, they. Uh, I was just rushing to make that pun. They <laughs> they opened for Nine Inch Nails and Bowie. Gotcha. And okay. I, I'm not sure who. I apparently it was. Mo- I guess because it was on the fly. It was just local bands in Europe. Gotcha. Like, okay, yeah. We're playing in this. So city. nothing big. Yeah. And we're playing in this city. Hey. Uh, Contact the the touring booking agent. Yeah. Who's, we need who's, someone else. Who, who's available? You want to play with Bowie? Yeah, and that that would kind of be who filled those slots yeah. when Morrissey jammed. Uh, personnel. Let's get into that. We have a couple um, 
new players on Gail Ann Dorsey on base. Uh, I saw an interview once where she was kind of talking about it was one of those typical stories where you're you're somewhere and they say, oh, David Bowie's on the phone for you. And you go, yeah, shut up, you know, <laughs> and you don't answer the phone. And then it turns out it was actually him. And I don't know how he got I don't know who the, the mutual was, but. Yeah, so she she's on board and will be, you know, for the rest of his touring career, will be on base. Well, she had played in, a, she was in Gang of Four for like a not critically acclaimed 90s album, I want to say. They, okay. they're, they're one of like the, you know, the best kind of like dance punk, art punk. I mean, the Chili Peppers would probably cite them as like their biggest influence, I would imagine, or one of them. Yeah, I, I've, yeah, they've mentioned them, but yeah. Um, so, you know, they, she's, she's got some, some pedigree. She's got some clout in the, she's played with Gang of Four and then it was also this kind of a cool band called The The. Oh, yeah. I don't know yeah. if she's on like the classic album, Soul Mining. She might have been on, some, kind of similar to the Gang of Four situation. She might have just joined in a later iteration of the band, but they got a great record called soul mining a big hit on there called this is the day it's like a classic new wave song so but she's she's played i mean i'm sure that's how some between gang of he four finds, and the, he finds uh, good musicians she's got connections so that yeah. i'm guessing that's how she wound up in, in david bowie's band here and zach alford on drums uh he ends up does he play on earthling i know he plays the earthling tour for sure i think he's drums on earthling but you're a lot of like program drums on Earthling, right? I mean, well, and, yeah. and acoustic too, I right? Mean, yeah. So even on this tour, like you kind of start to hear a lot of the Earthling stuff coming to fruition. But the there's sound, still a live drummer. The sound, especially, yeah. Because like I, I remember watching these videos and going, "Well, it doesn't sound like like you watch the drummers playing. It doesn't sound like he's making those those noises, though. It all sounds more or less electronic." I wonder if that's Peter Schwartz, who was the musical director as well as played synthesizer. That probably had a lot to do with some of these weird, cool sounds. It's I kind of like when they add that in, especially this era. Like, there's some songs where it sounds like there's like robots talking. Andy Warhol, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah, perfect example. Yeah, Um, and friend of the pod, Mike Garson, is back. His first tour with Bowie since uh, Young Americans. Americans, Yeah, the Philly Dogs. Yeah. That's crazy, yeah, 20 years. And Carlos Alomar is is back as well. Um, does he ever play with him again after this? this or is this it? I think Carlos? it might be it. And he, you know what, he's a really important, I think, piece for the sound because mm-hmm. uh, Reeves is also here, too. Yeah, yeah. And, but forget. Reeves doesn't sound as loud, at least to me, as he does on the albums. I think... I think There's definitely space... Yeah, he, I he, think Alomar helped create that a little bit. They, they actually played really, really well together. Um, yeah, because it, it, on paper that's not a mix that should work. Yeah, it, I, they're, I'm, they're total opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, Alomar plays the uh, you know the stuff for the clubs, the the stuff that's very quote unquote safe. Yeah, and Reeves is the total opposite. He's the guy that's the asshole making noise. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't mean he's an app, but you know you get what I mean. Yeah. Like when you're when you're being a uh, hyperbolic on on each end of the spectrum that they're on so you, you mesh them together and reeves is bungee jumping work. reeves bungee jumps without a cable when he plays yeah. guitar right mm-hmm. as we're yeah I, yeah no it, it's brilliant i i think this might be some of the best guitar playing for a bowie tour and he's got that really period. cool guitar again where it's got like no neck oh the headstock yeah yeah one of those i think you just tune it from behind they, oh, oh no! Okay, so there's yeah we're, we have it up on the screen for the remind us of what it, this whole thing looks like. But uh, 
No, it's it's different. It's not a reverse headstock one. It's like a. It's something. If there's just a lot of air happening yeah. in the headstock, yeah, it's weird. And that's I think another important. We have it on in the background, which is good because that, that's another thing that's different about this tour is the. It's not a really elaborate set. It's more focused on like atmosphere and vibe. Yeah, there's and just colors. It's kind of dark, dra- draped in a curtain with a couple of mannequins. Yeah, and that's kind of yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So well, it's, a, it's more like skull. cool blue lights to create a cool vibey atmosphere, a dark kind of industrial atmosphere, like dark with lights, dark with vibrant lights. It creates a pretty cool, you know, look. There's no gloss on it whatsoever. It's funny. I was just talking about gloss with a coworker today. We were talking about what makes Star Wars great. And the original trilogy, there was no gloss. It was all like a hunk of junk spaceships with grime and rust all over them bought from a grimy shop with a grimy owner and then the more gloss star Wars. like i love the underworld where they're in the streets and they're at the clubs and you know uh when i I was talking about the more gloss the the, it just becomes typical sci-fi and it kind of loses that character what i've kind of concluded with star wars i don't really watch it anymore it's one of those things i'm approaching 30 years old and you know you kick certain things out of your life it's it's star wars for me and i do get a little bit annoyed with like the the old people getting mad at you know what was better in my day and you know because but i think it was made for you at a certain point in time yeah the the modern ones are going to have that modern gloss on it but they can't really recreate like if they tried to do what they were doing in the 70s with these movies, like the kids wouldn't, and that's who it's—it's it's made for the kids. It's Star Wars. Yeah. You try saying that in your biggest macho football man voice, right? Like, <laughs> it's for you know twelve-year-olds, fifteen-year-olds, whatever. It, that's what Star Wars is primarily made for. So, I think I've just—I've learned to accept the new Star Wars movies aren't for me. So therefore, I'm not really looking to complain about them. But I totally get what you. I mean, it's the same mo- thing with music, right? Modern gloss annoys yeah. me with albums too. Like I feel like the new Rolling Stones album was pretty good. But it did. I don't know why they got Andrew Watt to produce it. It was like it, very, very glossy. It had a lot of that. The best songs are the ones that don't have that on it, like the last track and uh, "Dreamy Skies" and mm-hmm. "Pardon My Digressing." We're turning this into the Rolling Stones show here, but yeah, I, I get your point on gloss. We don't always uh, get into the Stones, though. At least we haven't we haven't mentioned you know who yet. So let's <laughs> let's let's keep the bingo players waiting. Um, so yeah, he plays. Speaking of this topic, he does do teenage wildlife quite a bit, which is kind of touching on this, you know, the whole yeah aging out from a certain uh oh, I don't know. We talked about that for half an hour before. <laughs> well, it's interesting yeah. too because it's also a younger audience here that was it, well, right. the year the yeah. U.S. states with yeah. nine inch nails. That's there, and think. that's why they it took a while for that to kind of gel a bit so it was like you said 12 to 17 year olds i think were like the the median age like that was who you were mostly seeing was teenagers at these yep. shows and that's kind of exactly what you were alluding to teenage wildlife's kind of about that you know falling out of the uh the teenage idea for becoming you know growing out of it more or less mm-hmm. so it's kind of a very meta song that he picked i mean i think all the songs that he picked the deep cuts that, you know, because he's mostly doing outside songs, but if it's not a song from outside, it's like a deep cut from his right. past. And I think they're all very fitting. Yeah, picks. let's let's get into that uh, because... Very, very carefully picked Selected songs, songs. yeah. So, the, the, yeah, the vault selections, we can kind of call them, I guess, mm-hmm. would be 
it was like he he really picked and chose what fits not just the the style of music because they're all rearranged as well so it's not like he picked it to be like oh this sounded like it could vibe it's like no teenage wildlife maybe sounds closer to the album most of them don't though right so he was picking kind of for topical reasons so for example like joe the lion (laughs) just like let's get that one out of the way we mentioned it when we talked about outside like oh he's going back to the what's that guy chris 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 burden is his name who like was crucified to a vw beetle or something and shot in the arm because of art it's like that's literally body as art that's what that's outside yeah it's you know it's murders art crimes using the body as a as a a focal point in the art so yeah it totally fit into this world of, of outside. Yeah. Um, More so than it did on Heroes, arguably. Like, I, I never... It like fits that, it for the dark reasons, but not as specific, maybe. I, yeah. It, it kind of recontextualizes the song a little bit for me, because that's always been one of my, like, least favorite songs on Heroes. Yeah, like, it's... I, I've come to Heroes for the Moss Gardens and, yeah. uh, and V2 it's Schneider. It's not the first people think of, that's for sure. Joe the Lion's yeah. a little heavy, but... It works here. I mean, because this is the heavy tour. It's the heavy album and all that. So, yeah, Joe the Lion, really, it de- I think it fits here. Like I said, even perfect. arguably more than it did on, on Heroes. Per- yeah, perfect. Uh, uh, also, Andy Warhol. I mean, he's the artist. Um, the only difference is when he says, hang him on my wall, he's literally hanging him on the yeah. wall now <laughs> you know, for the body mutilation. But And that's one that's completely reimagined. Um not not as much as another one, which we'll get to for another reason in a bit, but it it sounds totally different. It sounds really cool. It's too. like a it's, mechanical reworking. It, it's yeah, like, it almost reminds me of like the Devo's four track demos, where it's, it's just like like there's a, the song's called Mechanical Man. Actually, Mechanical, imagine that. But uh, yeah, it sounds like that, like just weird computer robot noises. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, who's the guy you were saying that was I think making those noises? Oh, uh, maybe like, Peter Schwartz could. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm. It could have been Garson too, or it, both. And it's like almost like a trip hop or like a drum. I can maybe like a drum and bass back. It's definitely like the Earthling style. Like, yeah, you know how they do yeah. Baby Universal also on this tour. Yeah, it's almost like that's Baby Universal '97. This could be like Andy Warhol '97. It's like the same type of reimagining. Mm-hmm. Uh, Breaking Glass is another one that just kind of fits. Um, when when he says don't look at the carpet i drew something awful on it it's like first i love the the mystery behind like, mm-hmm. that, that involves but also it's kind of to me he's connecting the connection is he's ashamed of what he's created don't look at it i drew i did something terrible don't look at what i've done and, and if that's not the art in outside mm-hmm. like the in the topic in the story then i don't know what is i when i was listening to uh I was the Rock Palace thing that we have on right now. They do uh, Lust for Life, right? Yeah. I didn't realize how similar those songs are. Like he was doing Lust for Life, and I thought it was Breaking Glass. No, like, they were very, very because you know the he does like a kind of a slow version of Lust for Life. It sounded exactly like Breaking Glass. Well, and Lust for Life is uh, same era, same period. It's a Supreme song too. It's uh, which one? Um, Can't hurry, love. Or is it Can't Hurry Love? No. Ding, ding, ding. I feel yeah, Can't Hurry Love. And then Jet did Do You Want to Be My Girl? And everyone said to Iggy, hey, they ripped you off. And he said, no, we just ripped off Diana Ross. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Breaking Glass fits in 
great. Um, yeah, what other ones did he do? Like Aladdin Sane, he did the title track. Um, well, and that may as well have been reworked. You know, Aladdin Sane, the title of the actual song is like, what, 1918 to 1945? Right. 1995. You may as well, yeah, you can put a 199 with a question mark because that's also a preoccupation of outside. Right. It's the theoretical end of the, you know, it's Y2K, the, yeah. end, of a, the end of the millennium. and Or, yeah, it should have been 99. Yeah. Or, like, nine yeah. with a question mark or whatever. Right. But, you know, it, yeah. it, it fits very well topically also here. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of cool, like, he sings on Broadway during the end, sings All Day and All the Night by the Kings. It's great, and, yeah. Uh, Galen Dorsey, who does a lot of great backing vocals yeah. slash duets on this tour, she started singing Where Have All the Good Times Gone. That's cool. Some really cool mashups. She sings under pressure. She does the Freddie Freddie Mercury, yeah. But I also love the vocals she adds to Night Flights. The yeah, I was just gonna say because you've always really liked the Bowie version of Night Flights, and I've kind of been like, I just fucking love the Scott Walker version way, way too much. But I think this is like the stuff on this tour. It's the best versions of Night Flights that Bowie ever. Some of the best versions of all of these songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Night Flights in particular gets like a huge boost for me. I'm like, oh, this I actually really, really enjoyed listen to these renditions of night flights yeah uh so he opened he opened the show um 46 times with the motel it started with look back in anger right and then he started he that opening 22 it times yeah but also he opened 26 times with subterraneans that's cool he was doing that with Nine Inch Nails. Oh, right. Because yeah. they would come out and do that. And didn't they, would, they do some other stuff together as they, well? Yeah, like Hurt. Hurt, right. Yeah, um, I've seen. And yeah. uh, the, a, a, there's another song from Nine Inch Nails' album that I'm not as familiar. It's the same album. It's all from Downward Spiral was their most recent album. Um, interesting thing on that, too. There's a, uh, there's a track on the Nine Inch Nails album that... Uh, they talk about it in that interview, that, that Bowie Reznor interview on MTV, where it's the same exact chords as, or the same exact notes. It's called Warm Place is the song, the Nine Inch Nails song. Same notes as Crystal Japan. Okay, cool. Which is, which is very interesting. Good it, one to borrow from. <laughs> not, and, as, not as known. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I think he did it unknowingly. Okay, like he, yeah, subconsciously. Or subconsciously, because yeah. he... What was interesting in that interview, too, is Reznor was saying... They're asking him... The interviewer was asking, well, what's your favorite Bowie album? And I guess Reznor's born, I want to say, in like the late 60s or something like that. So his album, he said, was Scary Monsters, because that he probably would have been like 15 or 14 at the time when it came out. And it was when he bought the Ryko disc bonus track With edition, Crystal Japan on it, yeah. That's when he noticed that he had ripped it off. He bought the, oh, my favorite Bowie album, got reissued, let's listen... Ah oh, fuck! I, I did it. I just stole this song. That was when he he came to the realization. But I thought that that was on Scary Monsters because I made this mega Bowie CD once, and that was the torrent that I downloaded, and it was on. And I thought, oh, interesting. Reznor also mentioned Low as like oh, quite a yeah. big influence, and 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 in particular, who, who <laughs> they would ask like they asked him, well, like you know why, and he would say, well, it's just because the songs were they were kind of still like, pop, well. The pop songs to start and instrumental at the end, he liked that, but he also liked how the pop songs went where you wouldn't expect them to go in a classic pop sense. Like, they were still catchy and super infectious, but it was like... Well, they weren't written like proper rock songs, mm-hmm. they, because they weren't. Like, they just weren't. The structures are crazy. I mean, that's the Eno stuff, right? Like, Eno doing that, in t- it was intentionally yeah. doing that, so yeah. Speaking of low, um, on Breaking Glass, so on the, the No Trendy version... They they botched the the beginning like completely, 
Reeves comes in at the wrong time, then the first like uh, eight to sixteen bars are just off until Bowie finally starts singing, and then they kind of go, "Okay, let's follow him now," because yeah. they, things just got just yeah. I don't know if I, I feel like it was Reeves maybe that came in at the wrong time, but he was also doing something, so maybe they didn't read what he was doing. So I don't want to blame anybody. Mm-hmm. I thought I love how that made the album though, which is cool. Yeah, you know? Gene Genie made the album, right? Gene Genie made, yeah, Get back one. <laughs> yeah. If you can't, yeah, that's a that's a, uh, a V two Schneider. And that's a studio take. Bowie Bowie joins late on V two Schneider on the sax, right? Yeah, another thing that that made the album. Or the happy accidents. Um, sense of doubt. There's a spot that feels like it was messed up and left into. I, yeah, I yeah. love that. Uh, you're talking scary monsters that made it. Yeah, these are all these characters in this show or in this uh, on outside in that universe yeah. are, are a bunch of scary monsters. So that that fits. Um, okay, let's talk about Man Who Sold the World. Uh, first of all, let's okay, let's get the Nirvana thing out of the way. So. <laughs> Kurt Cobain stole the song from Bowie. He didn't steal it from him, but he made it. You you Google to this day the man who sold the world. I'll put it to song you. by Nirvana, and it's yeah. like and you look uh, written by David Bowie. It's almost like Hurt. We just mentioned that song. That's yeah, like a, a Johnny, Johnny Cash, Cash song. Now, yeah. You know, these are like the classic, most popular cover songs yeah. ever. I'll, I'll put it to you this way: There's a reason why he does such a different version of it. He's reclaiming it. He's like, absolutely because he, he has to. He couldn't go and do the man who sold the world. The album rendition. No, yeah. Hey, it's mine. This is how I originally did it. It's like no, somebody else reinterpreted it and made it a hit. Now you got to do the same. Yeah, and he does a pretty good job. He does it. a great job of it. Um, I, I also love how at the beginning of the song he says, "This song is from 1968." 68, yeah, like he's he's real. <laughs> the album's from 70s. Though. I wrote it even before then. This he's is... really making a point that like this was made before that guy was even born. I think around it ticked him off like a little bit because yeah. he would say, "I think I've read it somewhere that like kids are not kids, people would come up to him and say like that that was Kurt Cobain's song." Like they thought, like they actually, some people would think that, and it, I think it bugged him a little bit. I, I, I don't know. It's, could, it's evident. I could be yeah. misremembering that, but de- yeah, whether he said it explicitly or not, he said it. You could read between the lines yeah. with that intro that you're talking 68 about. Sixty-eight is great, um, and he does do a lot of that in this tour. He does kind of talk about this, this is from this album, right? Yeah, this, this is the voyeur of utter destruction. Like this, this is, is from, new. Yeah. This is from there. This is I'm covering this. Yeah, he he did a. He he had a lot of bad, not a lot. He wouldn't say a lot, but he would, he would kind of do this thing where he would say what the last song was from, and then what the next one was gonna be. And I think that was also a way too of, of bragging like, okay, I just did this thing from '68. Now we're gonna do a thing from '96 or right. from '95. Like yeah. I've been doing this shit for thirty fucking years, and it's all great. He even said something on the, what uh, on the uh, the no trendy album, the no trend. What's what's that performance? That's it's in Birmingham. I think it's right before he does Jump They Say. He did like an outside song before, and then he does Jump They Say. This is from 92. Yeah, we're doing, doing a lot of new ones right now. Yeah. He's kind of making a joke about that. <laughs> I thought that was really good. So yeah. I did really enjoy his banter between tracks. Uh, the, on the, this. the best part about it, too, is when you watch it, he's doing, he's saying that with a grin. In other words, like he knows what he's doing is yeah. like, he, you know, and it's, I think it's in fun. It's not like he's like he he doesn't have to prove anything, although I think he maybe he did feel like he had to for the man who sold the world. Let's let's talk about this version of it. It's just 
you know, it took me a while to gel with it just because I'm so familiar with the album version and, dare I say, the the MTV Unplugged version. But, you know, the the, the traditional arrangement of it, that the, the vocal melody, it... it definitely is a bit more spacey and kind of out there and it's not it's not what you're used to um but the more i listen to it it's just such a great new song it's really a new new. song because like the most like defining part of that song instrumentally um outside of what's that really cool percussion part that oh the guiro yeah Yeah. other than that is is the bass right the bass line that's not there on this this. that's too happy so yeah this is a different vibe you got rid of the most you know uh like the dominant part of your original and just totally took it out it's well what would you even classify this it's like a trip hop version of the song it's almost like massive attack like tricky is who leon blank was based off of right this is almost like the massive attack version of Mm -hmm. uh, of the man who sold the world a total total reinvention of the original probably the biggest reinvention out of all of these yeah it's either this or andy warhol well he he wrote a new song like honestly arguably one of the best compositions of the 90s for bowie and he used it to reclaim this song. So he just kind of took the the general chord the structure and the and lyrics. The chords, and, yeah. yeah. But when you're doing these totally different instruments, like the chord sequence is like it, you can't tell that right. it's the not, like it doesn't sound like the same chords. Like you're not you wouldn't. Oh, and the timing's that. different, and yeah, and because you know, like he wouldn't he could have done that and changed the words with that instrumental, and you you wouldn't like get sued if it right. was you, <laughs> yeah, if exactly. he was somebody else. Yeah. Doing that. And doing like it would, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be recognizable enough for you to get sued over it. Right. Like, that's how different it is. Yeah. Even the way that Reeves, presumably it's him, plays the the riff survives the do 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 do. He plays it in a very kind of eastern flair at the be the beginning, and then it, the second half of playing that riff, he must kick on. It, it must be a delay pedal of some sort because it it's at it's at the sweet spot, and I love analog delay where. I was actually just showing you this. We were playing guitar the other day, and I was playing around with my delay pedal, and it, it'll do something called self-oscillate, which is... So a delay pedal is like an echo, so it just repeats what you've played at a set time or speed, or both, of when you've played it to add a cool kind of trailing echoey effect. And it'll start to self-oscillate if you turn the effect up enough, where essentially the, the delay you'll start delaying the delay so you'll start repeating the repeats that you've played so in essence it'll go on infinitely because it'll just keep repeating it right and if you let that go it just goes crazy and you can play around with the pitch of it and but anyway that self-oscillating is really cool but if you set it just to the brink of that of, of that happening it creates this effect where it feels like something's about to take off it's like something's about to happen with this guitar tone, but it doesn't because it's not quite at that point. Maybe you know what? Maybe we'll splice it in just to kind of see if you can feel that vibe. just sounds like something's gonna happen it just keeps getting like louder and bigger and fuller like it's filling up the room more and more and it's like oh, i hope the roof doesn't collapse 
Yeah. It, does, it doesn't explode because song like Man Who Sold the World isn't supposed to explode. It's supposed to kind of stay in that ominous state. Right. You yeah. Know, like where you're like all freaked out about this doppelganger. Yeah. Yeah. Actual. Yeah, I've kind of forgotten about the actual story because yeah. it's it's so different that you've kind of you don't focus on the lyrics as much knowing the the two versions. You're just like yeah. When I listen to it, I'm always going okay. This is different. That's new. You kind of forget the lyrics altogether. It's funny. And what else is new? Uh, Teenage Wildlife that he's... Or not, sorry, not that's new that he's doing that's a, a non-album track. Uh, yeah, Teenage there? Wildlife, we kind of talked about... Um, Let's jump, they say, a little bit. Uh, that's... Look, look Back in Anger kind of started. I guess Look Back in Anger is... Kind of fits... I think like the whole he outside. maybe just liked it, <laughs> the song. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that one fits quite as much. I just, the title, I, Anger, I don't know. It, he did Diamond Dogs 34 times. Yeah, that that works. Oh, yeah, de- yeah definitely, because yeah. the if you're to compare albums topically, the closest sister, cousin, brother album to Outside is Diamond Dogs. Yeah, right, right. yeah. we've Just different types yeah. of dystopia, but, you know, similar... Um, so yeah, I mean the whole, the the gangs and all that. Yeah, Diamond Dogs. I just think I do think fits. It more than Look Back in Anger. And you know what? The Don't Look Back in Anger. Whoa, I'm having trouble talking. Uh, maybe that wasn't as much as we thought. Like, let's see. Don't look or Look Back in Anger. Oh no, that was 93 times. It just didn't open as many times. Yeah, because the um, motel started to take over. Yeah, as but. The, uh, he also did Boys Keep Swinging 22 times, DJ 21 times, so maybe just kind of revisiting Lodger. Lodger, yeah. yeah. A lot of Lodger. A lot of Lodger. A lot of Berlin, I guess, because there's some some low also. Yeah. With Subterraneans and Breaking Glass. Uh, what about Heroes? Joe the Lion. Anything else from Heroes? Heroes. The, the title track, too. So mostly from that period. Yeah. And, hey, some Earthling songs. He oh, because yeah, he starts doing the lead-off single. He does bit. Telling Lies. Telling Lies was a new song. 20, 23 yeah. times. And uh, Seven Years in Tibet he did a couple times. Little Wonder a couple times. And Baby Universal 97 is kind of a uh, Earthling song. I mean, like, it's yeah, Tin Machine 2. Kind of. It, yeah. It's definitely done in the, the spirit of Earthling, or closer to it than the Tin Machine version right on this tour. And Baby Universal is, I mean, that, that's a great pick for this too because that, that is like a classic Bowie song to me. Like it, you know, it's like it's just a really, really good song that doesn't really get talked about too much. Right. It's on yeah. Tin Machine too. Yeah. And even though he he redid it, he didn't it didn't make the album, so it's kind of like a lost, forgotten, you know, David Bowie classic. Some other highlights. Uh, I like the well, I like both versions of Oxford Town that we get on the live albums. On one of them, I think it's the Dallas show. There's this really cool riff that's being played by I think Alomar. It's kind of like I don't know if he's doing like a weird, like add nine thing or something. Uh, he's some kind of weird chord. Uh, but it's a, adding a totally new riff basically to a song that's, you know, I've got a really good vibe. And then that's absent a couple months later because those yeah those shows were recorded. Let's see, October thirteenth for the Dallas show and the Birmingham show was December thirteenth, so only two months apart. And that that song sounds totally different if you listen if you A B them. Uh, 
there's that guitar riff has been scrapped. Maybe Bowie said, hey, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't know why you would. It was great. Um, but then there's kind of like this weird synthy thing that's that's added instead. So that's kind of cool to see when you get, you, like how often do you get two releases from the same tour? Not very often. I mean, bootlegs exist, of course, but... Well, because there's two in the official box set that you have, right? There's Well, okay, yeah, maybe we should talk about the releases. Another one I thought of, though, is we do get the Black... Welcome to the Blackout and Stage is one where there's two from the same tour. Now, yeah, yeah so the box set, there's some interesting... I'm going to digress here about Bowie releases. Um, so the box set... the number five like the official one that comes with all the studio albums does not have an album from this tour it's only got live at the bbc 2000 so that's an hours tour Mm -hmm. live show um so they released in 2000 and i think it was just in the year 2020 yeah they said okay we're not releasing the the box set because of covid and uh okay like whatever like yeah of course that's a reasonable excuse we were hearing a lot about you know stuff getting pushed back with Mm -hmm. vinyl plants being shut down and all that kind of stuff um but then a week later so that was september 27th they said we're we're delaying box set number five and then a week later october 2nd they announced the brilliant live adventure box set so okay so we can't sell you this because of covid but we'll sell you this because of COVID. i don't quite get that shilling the rubes they're shilling the rubes a little <laughs> bit and well they were shilling the rubes with the way that they released them they released them like a few weeks apart or like a month apart each they released mm-hmm. six albums from this era uh there were two 95 shows there was a couple earthling ones and a couple hours era ones and they made you pay for shipping for all six of them instead of just shipping it as a box Wow. And I think they even sold you the box as well afterwards. <laughs> so the, I don't know what's going on there, but but yeah, but here's that's what I don't like paying the post office. Like, that's not even they're I, not even making money off the. Well, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, it doesn't make weird. Yeah, yeah that's tr- yeah, that's true. Unless they were, you know, In cahoots with the post office. <laughs> <laughs> but now, so there's I have a bit of a theory because it just doesn't add up that you you kind of blame like there was a press release kind of blaming blaming covid for the release and they they had this big thing about oh well in keeping with the consistency of releasing it 20 years after the last one we want to release it next year because of this and and covid uh but here's six albums it's like well the box set had has nine in it like why couldn't you ship that anyway Mm -hmm. my my theory is that maybe they wanted to just release they there was a lot of material recorded obviously professionally for these tours maybe they just wanted to get it out for copyright purposes they wanted to you know start the clock where hey we you know how you have stuff unreleased eventually you have to release it and you get all these great box sets down the road because something it's 50 years then it becomes public domain or something like that if you don't release it i I know stuff eventually no matter what you do will become public domain but uh, like Mickey Mouse just became like the original version of Mickey Mouse became public domain. Right, I think I saw that January first, and like like a minute after midnight, like in California or something, there was a trailer for like a horror movie where Mickey Mouse is the killer came out because you can use that version of him now. Like last year, Winnie the Pooh ent- entered yeah. the public domain, and there's like a Winnie the Pooh horror movie. That's where he's our a claim to fame. Is that not a Winnie Peg? Winnipeg the, thing. Yeah. yeah, he's a Winnipegger. But anyway, so yeah, I don't know. There's there's six live albums. I don't own any of them. Um, 
the liveandwell.com is a great live album from the 90s that I would have bought as a standalone um but I'll just listen to it on streaming. I the, these albums are great. Uh, don't I don't think you need two of them. There's a lot of repeat material. Uh, but like I said, it's kind of fun a being them. I, I'd like rather do that on Spotify and make a, a a playlist though. That's what I did actually. I listened to that uh, the last couple of days where I just kind of put the two albums on a playlist and the ones that had both songs, I listened to them back to back and noticed some differences. You're not going to do that with vinyl. You're not going to go, okay, let's stop and put the other yeah. one on and here. So that's a, a brief history on the brilliant live adventure releases. I'm sure some of our listeners were pissed off at the the, the rollout of these yeah. live albums and, and the delay of getting box set five. Although it was, all, it's it's fun. Uh, if you go to like Steve Hoffman forums, you get all these theories about what it's going to be on and, all yeah. this debate and that's kind of neat and now that it's over i don't go to steve hoffman forums so i enjoyed waiting for it but yeah that's that's what i got on that <laughs> you know something about this tour that i i contemplated was like i wonder if it ever crossed his mind i'm sure he, he did and he settled on what he thought was best and i think the, the finished product is, is great especially because we get these new reworkings of new songs but i wonder if he ever in his mind, tinkered with the idea of like doing outside the album, mm-hmm. like outside tour the album front to back. Yeah, that would have been cool. I mean, I'm looking at the track listing. It's like these. What was they're, they're in a different order. It's like Hearts Filthy Lesson, Voyeur of Utter Destruction, Oxford Town Outside. It's like all scrambled. Yeah. Of course, the album's a big hyper cycle, and the the order's kind of arbitrary anyway. Right. But you know, there is like a world where I could see like outside the tour. Being really, really cool, but it, yeah. it didn't look like he was going for that like stage theater thing this time around. No, maybe that's what he ultimately yeah. decided to just make it about the music and it's, the, and the an, an experience yeah. as opposed to a yeah story. Because because yeah, that's that's true. That, this would have been the time be, to do it. Like if you were thinking of any David Bowie album that would be a good theater front to back, it's probably this. What mm. else is there that Ziggy. would be like? Diamond Dog, Ziggy. Even uh, Ziggy, though, I nah, mean, like... Yeah, this is more of a linear... Well, not linear, non-linear story. Because, like, it's, you know, It Ain't Easy has no ties, really, right, to, like, yeah. any type of theme. Um, you know, neither to soul love, really. But, like, every song on Outside serves a purpose. Yeah, he could have done it here. Right, so it, it, it May, I mean, maybe this was it, but he just pulled from the rest of his catalog and, you know, didn't shove it down your throat. It's like, okay, act one... Mm-hmm. Leon takes us outside. I also think too, like, think of the songs he's doing. They're all upbeat, like, except for when he started doing the intro uh, with the motel. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, you can't really do the uh, what's the song I'm trying to think of the oh, ha, 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 no, uh, wishful beginnings. Wishful begin like you. That's where you would lose those fourteen-year-olds, right? Like they probably yeah. wouldn't translate. I mean, would have been it, great. It would but... <laughs> translate live to us, yeah, and, exactly. and the listeners. But we're talking about this very small percentage of people, right? I guess if you're trying to go on tour and reclaim your popularity to the, a certain extent, I think both to the Nirvana both, fans, to the you know, yeah, you yeah. can't really maybe be doing all those. Um, like Architects Eyes was another one. He was doing it, but it got dropped. Mm-hmm. at some point this tour that one makes sense but yeah some of them maybe just didn't make sense for he did i'm deranged i think he did that one uh let's see 23 times so, yeah so which ones doesn't he do uh yeah architect's eyes was only twice actually he's not doing ramona a stone if you even count that as a song i think out of all the segs that one is 
the most like a song. Um, he doesn't do Leon Takes Us Outside. Obviously, that's kind of an intro also. He does do Outside. He does do Outside. It's a common a one, too. He doesn't he do No, every, con- no Control. every show, pretty much. No Control. Yeah, No, No Control. Okay, so there's another one he doesn't do. But yeah, I mean... He does do Strangers When We Meet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he, he picked the the ones that made sense. Small Pot of Land, he doesn't do that, right? Ever on this tour? Ooh, I don't know. Because that, that's another one too, right? Where I, I can I get why he would ditch certain songs. Like even the motel's ballsy for a... Yeah. But, you know, when you... you th- you think of it as an because he does look back in anger as the opener. Okay, rock and roll, fast-paced song, head, you know, very busy rhythm section. That's a, it makes sense, right? Like it's a very safe choice. The motel's kind of more of like a, that is like almost theater. Like okay, let's do this big, slow build. You know, that song's a great big build up. That is also a really cool way to start a show. Yeah. You know, the the that rock and roll totally. song safe yeah. and 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 I'm not trying to say that as a bad thing. Like that's a, you go to a rock show. And you see a banger rock song as the opener. That's a You're kick-ass pumped. way to yeah. start off a show. But the motel's a really cool way to start off a show, too. Well, and he started off his Glastonbury set with Wild as the Wind, which is great. Mm-hmm. Glastonbury. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he sent that... Garson out to play Green Sleeves, too. Speaking of Garson, I, I reached out. <laughs> I, I Twitter messaged him asking, or not messaged, uh, just tagged, t- hoping maybe he'd respond. He didn't. But... Uh, saying is so there's a version of voyeur of utter destruction where that switch to f sharp minor that kind of starts the research as pierced all extremes part mm-hmm. and like it just sounds like somebody fell over on a piano it's just like like every key was hit and i said mike was that you falling over on your <laughs> piano like it's, it sounds great it's like a explosion of piano keys um he's really busy on this yeah. Tour. Like he like he's like busy on the keys. I mean, like yeah, he does another Aladdin Sane piano solo. Yeah. yeah. Um, a different. It's close but different. You know, he's not doing uh tequila or any. You know, he's, yeah. he's he, You could. I mean, some people. That's on YouTube. Someone recreated the Aladdin Sane album note for note piano solo. No, really. Kind of goes against the spirit of the solo. Right. You're not supposed to be trying to recreate something. It's supposed to be spur of the moment. So. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm a fan of, of I mean it, it's a daunting task and if you pull it off I mean I got to tip my cap to some extent cuz I mean I could never do that in a trillion years I could practice every day for the rest of my life I wouldn't be able to do it I don't think but I also yeah. don't think I have any you know need to do it. But yeah, he he's really busy um, on here. I also I found it interesting too Bowie has to count the bars near the end of his solo cuz I guess when you're playing live you yeah, don't fuck that up. Yeah. And he he starts 29, 30, 31, 32. Almost like uh, George Martin, or yeah. Mal, was it Mal who was doing it? Yeah, oh, we, in the life. Yeah, I, I knew, I, I knew it before I even said it. We did our Beatles quota. Yeah. There it is. But yeah, in a day in the life, they're counting the. You can really 20, 20, yeah. 21. He yeah. does it in a theatrical way too. Twenty two, twenty three. <laughs> <laughs> um, another Garson moment is a he's just playing chords like in a on a keyboard during uh, "We Prick You," and it sounds like. We have the same keyboard. We have this cat. We both have a Casio keyboard. And it sounds like he's playing on one of those where he said that Bowie got him one of those and he played Disco King on it. And it sounds like a cheap keyboard. And he said, I like the sound. Keep it. Don't play it on your, you know, Steinway or whatever he's got. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought that was cool. It's so it's not on early versions of We Prick You, but it's on later ones. So it's on the Birmingham show where he just plays these chords over it, these long 
you know, chords, and it, it sounds neat. Um, and uh, I, I'm assuming it's Reeves is playing, like, with a lot of Eastern flavor again, which is really cool, and it's just a cool little... Yeah, I, I like the version of We Prick You in Birmingham. Give it a give it a listen. There's a lot of recommended listening and, and viewing for this show. There's a great... Did you watch the rehearsals? I was going to. It's, it's on cool. my watch later. Yeah, it's, I, I didn't get around it's to neat. it. I mean, it's, there's nothing groundbreaking, but yeah. it's neat. Just I think it starts they're doing I uh, wanted to watch flights. that. I should have gotten around to yeah. it. Because it is interesting to see... To see how it gets pieced together, yeah. right? Because it's not the finished they product, were, it's something in between. They were sharp by this point. Yeah. So that, I mean, I wish it was like day one of rehearsals. That would be so cool yeah. to be yeah. a fly on the wall. But it, they're in this, where, they're in like a garage, like this big warehouse garage or something. Mm-hmm. And it's just neat seeing them, you know, kind of hash things out. Uh, yeah, Rock Palace 1996. There's a festival one. Just Google Outside Tour. It'll be the first thing you see. That's yeah. a great show. That's why that was the one that I watched. Yeah. It was the first one that popped up. Looked to be in decent quality. Because there's a few... I mean, this is at the point where people are starting to video bootleg concerts, right? So I, there's yeah. a couple handheld, like, you know, Fujifilm, yeah. like, yeah. tape recorder. Like, pretty bad quality, but also kind of neat, because, like, there's, like, full performances. Like, yeah, this is around the bootleg. I mean, people have been yeah. audio bootlegging shit for, you know, well before this, but video bootlegs are kind of probably starting to be a new thing. We're, we're now in the era where you haven't seen it all, as where in the 70s, like, we've seen all of the Bowie footage there is, live footage of the 70s. Yeah, and we're uh, like, oh, I wish there was just two minutes of the Diamond Dogs. Right, yeah. Or, and, like, the Beatles, here we are again. But, like, like I, I, I think of, we've seen every, like, photograph of them at this point. Never mind live performances. Like, well, they were, you know, I saw some bogus article. It was from, like, a reputable source and everything. I don't, I'm not going to say names because I can't remember the article. But they made this big deal about in the Now and Then, the new Beatles music video, there's new footage of the Beatles in, in Hamburg. Like that's in the video. It's like no, it's like an old video. I've seen the video before. No, yeah. It's like it's all. There's nothing new. Yeah, I didn't notice there's anything new. new. It's stuff I yeah. yeah. You know, it's like near the end of the video. Where it's like an old. It's just the three of them. Um, no, no drums. Just the three guitar players in the video. Right. And it's like I've seen that video before. Yeah. It's existed. I don't even think it's from Hamburg either. They got that wrong. It's like <laughs> or there's like one more millisecond before they cut it on this version. They didn't fade out. They kept it all yeah. in. So yeah, we've seen everything for that. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is there's there's a lot. There's you, you know there's there's tons of stuff out yeah. there for this tour, and this is also like, it's known as like Bowie's back in fine form. He's this back is in best business. tour since what? This is you know, this is like he, he's back on top again. Like he's regained. Oh, it's yeah, it's it's just excellent. Everything is like if you're ranking tours, this would be this might be the one I'd want to go to. I mean, I've always, I've always had a soft spot for Glass Spider. I just think it's such a great spectacle. That would be a good one to, to be at. But, and, and of course, like ugh, to be in that small smoky room in, in Germany during the '78 tour, where he's, you know, he's basically doing yeah. like that would be incredible. But okay, <laughs> as as we go back, it gets better and better. You know, Ziggy Spiders, that'd be a great show and. It'd all be great, but yeah, this this is this is right up there with them. It's one of my favorite tours, I, just because you get such cool renditions of classic songs, and you, like I said, you hear the new ones kind of evolve throughout the tour. Do you have any uh, anything to add? Like the Moon Age Daydream 
as a Reeves guitar it's just different it's, just, it's, it's different and it's, it's different great. from the Ronson which is always going to be cool um, seeing the different guitarists reinterpret yeah I mean solos. obviously a lot more whammy bar <laughs> just <laughs> his thing but you know actually funny yeah Reeves shines on it but I think the highlight of it is actually before the solo starts the guitar cuts out and Gail Ann Dorsey has a kind of a not a solo but it focus on Gail Ann Dorsey's bass playing comes in before where she's playing a bit more melodic as opposed to just driving the bus mm -hmm. you know what let's let's cut that in too because that's that's a highlight of the, the show I'm glad you asked This is she's outside of Bowie. She's probably the biggest star on this. I mean, she shares the stage with him yeah. more. Or he shares it with her more than anyone else. She gets the she's kind of uh, she's kind of up front and center too a little bit, or more so than some of the other guys. Yeah, and uh, she's going to become a staple, like you, you mentioned earlier, in you know in his band, and for great reason. She's and she's got a, such a cool look too. Like in the music videos that we're about to you know touch on once we get to Earthling. Like I'm glad she's here to stay. Yeah. All right, we filled up an hour on the outside tour. That was cool. I, I didn't have much prepared. I yeah, said, okay, this is good. This might be quick, but I think we could get into a lot of... There's just so much to talk about that it, it probably will last. So we did it. We filled up an hour. Um, we've got a, an album coming up. All right, mm -hmm. I'm excited for that. Uh, I think it's just going to be you and me for this one. We haven't done one, just the two of us, since... Black Tie? Black Tie, White Noise. That was like... Four months ago, five months ago, it'll be fun. Uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be back with Earthling next. Um, I'm glad we got a little bit of a sneak preview of it. I thought that was a really cool part of this. Yeah. Process was watching. Always oh, start. He's at that point where he's all because I wondered about that because a lot of these songs sound Earthling esque. So I'm kind of wondering. Well, it's '96. He surely he's got some Earthling stuff under his belt. He's probably wrote half the songs. And it turns out, yeah, he's. He's already got one. He's got the lead singles already worked out because I think the single came out in November of '96. I'm not sure when this tour ended, but in October. That was really yeah. cool to me to say. Oh, he's at the point in the tour where he's already doing new stuff that wasn't even there when the tour started. I guess he write it on the on tour. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I'm sure he wrote the album in the year he was on tour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to talk Which about might, that. Yeah, album. That's got to be tough. It's hectic, but yeah. I mean, I thought that was a really cool part is seeing Earthling kind of get born in the middle of this it's really interesting so and yeah that, that's what we're on to next so i can't right. wait yeah thanks for listening uh i've been jesse i'm john catch you next time Town. I have not been to Oxford Town
Good night.